Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. This episode features Professor John Quiggan, author of Economics in Two Lessons, Why Markets Work So Well and Why They Can Fail So Badly. The book was published earlier this year by Princeton University Press. The blurb on the back cover gives us a nice summary. Since 1946, Henry Hazlitt's best-selling Economics in One Lesson has popularised the belief that economics can be boiled down to one simple lesson. Market prices represent the true cost of everything. But One Lesson Economics tells us only half the story. It can explain why markets often work so well, but it can't explain why they often fail so badly, or what we should do when they stumble. As Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Samuelson quipped, When someone preaches economics in one lesson, I advise, go back for the second lesson. So what are the two lessons? Lesson one is that market prices reflect and determine opportunity costs faced by producers and consumers. In lesson one, the opportunity cost of anything of value is what you must give up so that you can have it. But, as John explains in his book, in many cases, we need to consider costs imposed on others. For instance, traffic congestion is one such externality we impose on each other when we drive. So, as John explains in his book, we need to consider social opportunity costs. The social opportunity cost of anything of value is what you and others must give up so that you can have it. It's worth buying John's book just for his explanation of the concept of opportunity cost, but his book contains so much more as we touch on in our conversation. For those who don't know John, he is the Vice-Chancellor's Senior Fellow in Economics at the University of Queensland and is the author, most recently, of Zombie Economics, How Dead Ideas Still Walk Among Us. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Professor John Quiggan, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Okay, let's jump right into it. Opportunity cost is central to the economics in two lessons. Now, could you just could you just go over briefly what was the lesson in the first uh, book that the, the the economics in one lesson book? It, it was it basically saying that all you need to consider is the opportunity costs of your actions and basically markets will reveal those costs to the participants and then they'll make op- optimal choices. Is that a fair summary of what that book was saying? I think it is. This is uh, Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson and his uh, borrowing unashamedly, he's quite open about it from uh, the 19th century French economist Bastiat, making the point that people don't pay attention to opportunity costs. For example, uh, the kind of thing he'll be criticising is somebody saying, well, the government should provide something to the public for free. Uh, he would be making the point that, well, although it would be free for people to receive it, there has to be an opportunity cost there. The resources that are being used provide that this could be provided to somebody else. Uh, and implicit in the story is always that uh, uh, the correct measure of opportunity cost is market prices. Okay, yes, and so... Market prices may not always reflect the true costs of 
an activity and an example of that for that you use in your book is pollution. That's right. I think before you get on to that, it's important, and I try hard in the book, to explain why it is that market prices should reflect opportunity costs, how the competitive market works and how the theory of general equilibrium gets us to those prices if everything is priced correctly. But in the case of pollution and many others, you have a situation where uh, there's no price charged for emitting pollution into the atmosphere typically, and so uh, the opportunity cost the social opportunity cost is the cost borne by everybody else of dealing with the pollution, uh, but the person doing it doesn't bear that cost. And so what we see uh, is too much pollution. Okay. Now, economists have a concept called, or there's a theory in economics uh, called the Coase theorem, so named after Ronald Coase, and this is one of the, the theories that you discuss in your book. And traditionally that Economists have seen that theorem as suggesting that, well, because if there are property rights in many things, then there should be the possibility of people trading amongst themselves to resolve any any issues, so any uh, externalities that uh, that pop up, such as uh, pollution. Would you just be able to explain what the Coase theorem is, please, John, and, and which, sure. in which circumstances it applies and where it may not apply? Well, um, uh, the example of, of pollution is is uh, a reasonably good one, and simplest maybe to look at something like a river. If um, if I have complete ownership over a river, and for a moment we suppose that uh, when I close out the ocean, anything I don't is dissipated harmlessly. Uh, I have the rights to uh, to do that, and no one. Um, and I bear the cost if I want to use the downstream water from the river. Uh, if I have already put uh, rubbish into it, I bear those costs. Uh, but a more typical case will be people downstream have rights. Uh, they can uh, sue me in case of story to prevent me from dumping waste into the river, uh, or they can negotiate with me to say, "Well, look, we'll let you do some as long as you." Yes. Now, there are a couple of problems with that. One is that uh, in many cases uh, the rights don't actually exist. Uh, they have to be uh, have to be created, and Coase is kind of coy about how that might be done. Uh, but the crucial point is that the logical opportunity cost applies to the creation of property rights. If we decide that uh, rather than just letting anybody get access to this river and do what they want, we're going to have property rights, by creating those property rights for some people, we're taking away rights from other people. And... A large section of the book says uh, that when you look at issues of income distribution, uh, you can't rely on the, the uh, uh, lesson one, as Hazlitt would do, uh, because at the back of all of this is the creation of a set of property rights, uh, which precedes logically uh, the markets in which those property rights are traded. And the kinds of choices we make as a society affect who gets the property rights and who doesn't. Do we have, for example, strong intellectual property which makes companies like Facebook and Google rich, or do we have uh, free flow of information? Yes, so you you raise a good point there about uh, intellectual property rights. And, I mean, this is one of the great challenges in economic policy, isn't it? So what I'm wondering with intellectual property, and I've asked this of of Nick Groom when we we had our chat, is how do you get the, the balance right? Because presumably you need 
some property rights in intellectual property to encourage innovation, but at the same time, you you want to make sure they're not so strict that the information doesn't then flow to others that that you, yeah. you don't lose those benefits. So, There's no easy answer to that, and part of the problem is that, as I mentioned in the book, um, part of, for example, Hayek's story about the market is how incredibly successful it is in revealing and aggregating information. Hayek and Mises, I guess, made this point back in the 1930s. Uh, but information itself is produced, and is this, in, is this public good that once out in the public can't easily be are hidden. We can only punish people for using it, for example, by having patent laws and so forth. So one way to do this, uh, uh, the dominant way in the last century or so, has been through intellectual property, where we've uh, granted longer and longer terms under which somebody who has the right to intellectual property, however they've acquired it, can prevent other people from using it. Uh, I think the vast majority of the economic profession thinks that's gone too far. Uh, the alternatives, well, one is... Uh, is uh, prizes that uh, uh, the government can say, here's some information we need. For example, how to, how to determine the longitude a ship is at, as they did in the 18th century. The first person to discover this will get a big prize. A second is uh, public good research of the type that's undertaken by universities. Uh, so all of those systems have their problems, uh, and um, and that I think um, uh, that I think cuts against any simple-minded version of one lesson economics where uh, money flows to the most creative in society. I don't think that either Google or Facebook contributed more to the development of the internet than, for example, the, the universities that developed it, but uh, Google and Facebook got the money because they are in crucial gatekeeper positions. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So what does the uh, second lesson mean for how we should uh, tackle climate change. Uh, what does uh, the second lesson in economics uh, mean for how we should deal with that, John? Sure. Well, essentially what we see is, as I mentioned with pollution in general, that uh, private opportunity costs aren't the same as social opportunity costs, that every time we um, uh, consume uh, any kind of uh, energy, almost any kind of energy, uh, there's some fossil fuel component, some carbon-based fuel component into it uh, that emits carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. There are other greenhouse gases, of course. We don't, in the absence of a carbon price, bear the cost of that. So economists basically say, well, what we need to do is put in a price, and we can either do that with uh, a carbon tax, we could do it with uh, uh, trade emissions permits, we could do it with more elaborate schemes like uh, uh, the clean energy target that was proposed a few years ago. Uh, what we've seen, particularly in Australia, uh, is that there's a lot of resistance to that, um, often from the uh, proclaimed advocates of the market in general, but but certainly that um, it's proved easier, uh, in the English-speaking countries at least, to push through with uh, regulatory measures than with the kind of price-based measures that economists would advocate. Okay, okay. Now... With the cost of uh, climate change or the cost of greenhouse gas emissions, I've seen estimates of around you know eighty dollars per ton. I think that might have been in the Stern report. That was US. Uh, that would have been about ten years ago. So that applies globally. Now, 
what about for a country like Australia if the rest of the world isn't taking action on climate change? I mean, should we still take action? Well, it's it's very much an opposite hypothetical for truth. We're among the most laggardly countries in in the world in terms of taking action on climate change. We have no policy at all. Um, The Europeans have almost completely eliminated coal-fired electricity and moving towards electric vehicles and so forth. Uh, Even in substantial parts of the US, we have have pricing. So, of course, that's the... um, uh, the premise, which is still widely suggested, is the opposite of the truth. We're right at the back with Saudi Arabia and places like that in terms of doing anything. And then the question is, uh, in general, uh, what's known as a free rider problem. I mean, I, uh, if I uh, don't like to see rubbish on the highway, for example, but I just keep on throwing my own rubbish out, well, even if other people, whether or not other people are doing the right thing, the amount of rubbish I put out won't have very much effect on me personally and so I can argue that look I'm just I don't like it but I'll just hope that other people will do the right thing um, what I do doesn't make very much difference to me um, collectively of course each one of us makes a difference to all of the others and, and there's a substantial global cost uh, but this kind of free rider argument uh, uh, can be made of course, it's very rarely people who consistently advocate free riding like this. The same people who say, well, really make any difference to uh, global warming, for example, if I said, well, look, we shouldn't have sent any troops to Afghanistan, there's thousands of people there on all sides, our you know, 500 or whatever couldn't possibly make any difference, uh, let's just relax and let the, you know, the US and other countries do the hard work, uh, those same people would usually be pretty horrified. I'd like hmm. to turn to something else I was struck by in your book, and you have a really good discussion of financial markets in the book, and you're asking questions about just how rational some of the pricing is in financial markets. And uh, I tend to agree that there is a lot of irrationality there, and particularly since the financial crisis. I mean, you just have to look at what's happening with bond prices at the moment uh, and all of this negative yielding debt. It just doesn't make a lot of sense uh, to me. And you also bring up uh, an example the example of Bitcoin, where we've got something that doesn't appear to have much value beyond being you know, possibly as a as a way to engage in illicit transactions or tra- transactions for illicit substances or services. It doesn't really seem to have a lot of value. So, what's could I just ask you what's gone wrong there? Why isn't the one lesson economics working in modern financial markets? That's a good question. I mean, I think um, all sorts of things are going on. Just just to clarify, essentially to get a Bitcoin, what you do is perform a complex but pointless calculation and then then uh, this uh, creates a Bitcoin within the so-called blockchain database. Um, and if I buy that Bitcoin from you, I've paid you for doing the calculation, but of course the calculation is no use to me. I can't, I can't say, look, I want want that computing power back so that you can use it for something useful. It's already been done, so there's no value to it. Only, only the belief that uh, the market will keep on believing in bitcoins long enough for me to do whatever it is, whatever transaction I want to make with the bitcoin. And given that 
Uh, there are almost no commercial transactions uh, of the ordinary kind undertaken with Bitcoin, and that the whole idea of blockchain as a killer technology appears to have died. It's safe to assume the only transactions are transactions that people don't want governments to know about. Now, that can be uh, clearly reprehensible, trading guns and uh, child pornography and stuff like this in so-called darknet markets. It can be people getting their money out from oppressive regimes where possibly it's beneficial. But either way, uh, either way, the, the, there is no ultimate answer if you say, well, look, what happens if people stop believing? Uh, the answer is the uh, the Bitcoin becomes worthless. There's nothing to be cashed in. That compares with, say, a fee in currency, a, like a $100 note, where the strength of the currency is that the government will accept that money uh, in return for payment of taxes. And that, as long as, as, long as the government stands, uh, you don't need faith in the piece of paper, only faith in the government. And that's, so the fact that Bitcoin has gone on and on for years and years and hasn't disappeared and is now traded on financial markets along with shares in steel mills and internet companies and things like that, uh, says that uh, there's no close relationship between share market prices and any true underlying value. Okay. So I mean, what do you think that means for how we should uh, you know, manage these share markets or regular – I mean, does this imply that – we should have you know, specific regulations around Bitcoin that we should be uh, that we should be hey, dubious well, about a lot of these new financial products. In my view, not a, we should always be dubious about new financial products, but I'd extend that to essentially the entire explosion of financial products that has occurred over the forty plus years since financial deregulation. We've had this huge increase in the size of the financial sector. Uh, with no obvious improvement in the allocation of capital, uh, in the capacity of individuals and households to manage risks and so forth. Uh, so my inference would be that the financial sector ought to be a great deal smaller, ought to be of the size it was in the 50s and 60s rather than what it is today, and that the entire growth in the financial sector has to be viewed as more like Bitcoin than like beneficial innovation. Mm. But just what is uh, what is uh, confusing is why people are buying these products, and that's what I can't can't understand. I guess, yeah. I guess my, my judgment is underlying that there is an indiv- a private value proposition, which is a combination of <laughs> tax minimisation, however you want to put whatever word you want to put, avoidance, evasion, minimisation, all of those things, <coughs> and in regulatory arbitrage where people can take bets and there's at least some chance that if the bets go wrong, the government will bail them out. Uh, we saw that at the time of the global financial crisis. Uh, the banks did fine. The were borne by uh, private citizens in, in the austerity period that came afterwards. Mm, okay. John, another thing I want to chat about, another really interesting section in your book regards... Uh, labor market programs and i like the point that you made that job creation programs have a mixed record i think that's true there are those dead weight effects the the fact that well you basically just 
give somebody a subsidy for a job they would have created anyway. Uh, there's a bit of that. We also we we just don't know what employers would have done in the absence of that. And uh, you talk about you know what what better policies may be. And uh, I mean, one of your suggestions uh, is this idea of a job guarantee. Now, what's uh, prominent in the public debate now is rather than a, what I've noticed is rather than say a job guarantee where employers act as, uh, sorry, governments act as employer last resort, there's now this idea of universal basic income. And one of the things I, I was hoping for in your book, and I know you foreshadow it, you mention it, but you don't go into it. I was really hoping for a discussion about universal basic income and I know that that may have been outside of the scope of your book but having read your book and particularly that section on labor market programs it's got me thinking more about that that concept and there's one US presidential candidate Andrew Yang who's been advancing it and I know it's of great interest to people have you had thoughts about have you been thinking okay. about universal base okay and and what it might I mean what what are your views on its pros and cons? So I think um, I think I'm broadly speaking a supporter, but I I, I guess I would see um, I would see universal basic income uh, arising from essentially uh, some of the other lessons that are in the book, which are that the best way to help is to give them money, uh, unconditional money. So I suppose that sort of is discussed in the book in, in various various places, and the conclusion I draw from that is that we want to reverse the long-standing trend we've had towards essentially um, essentially chiving the unemployed as much as possible, um, uh, restricting access to unemployment benefits and so forth, uh, that um, I suppose I, I, in my public discussion of this, have said, well, what matters first is basic rather than universal, that uh, everybody should ha- have access to a basic income uh, essentially uh, with much much less conditionality than we have at present. And I make the point that um, uh, that and, uh, there isn't a lot of difference between a guaranteed minimum income, an idea that's been around for a long time, and a universal income paid to everybody and clawed back in taxes. You can do the numbers, and essentially the two come out the same. So I suppose I've, I've come out in support of What's better and what's more commonly called a guaranteed minimum income? Uh, the idea would then be that uh, uh, job creation would be at a level of income higher than the guaranteed minimum income. That would be looking, in essence, at a more generous and more accessible unemployment benefit uh, combined with a government commitment to full employment. Okay, I just want to make sure I understand what you were saying about uh, the the cost of the scheme. So. I mean, my intuition would be that it would cost a lot more than our current welfare programs and that, uh, you know, you would have to raise taxes to be able to afford this. Uh, and we're not really sure, mm. you know, just how people would react and, you know, what level of, uh, uh, you know, to what extent people would just rely upon this rather than go into the workforce. So could I just... Yeah. Could we just, could you just go back to that point about the cost of it and what you're thinking sure. is there, John, please? So. One way of doing this, which a lot of people, I don't, I think a lot of people like the idea of, is give this universal amount to everybody and claw it back through taxes. And oh, in that yes. Case, in that case, um, 
or finance it through tax. In that case, the tax increase has to be very high because essentially you and I and everybody uh, on high incomes or, or medium to high incomes, as well as paying, as well as making a transfer to people who have no market income, uh, we have to receive from the government this uh, universal payment and then, of course, we have to pay for it. So, so obviously there's a huge increase in taxation there and, in my view, no easy path to it. Uh, a place like Alaska have a small universal payment, but that doesn't really change people's lives very much and is vulnerable being, being cut back at any time. If we looked at the cost of, of a guaranteed minimum income, it will be substantial, but within the range in which a variation between um, between different countries or different developed countries already, we'd be looking at um, uh, at with a very generous version of it, uh, an increase in, ta- in the tax share of ten percent of, of national income. And that's a lot, so it's not something that's going to be uh, easily implementable in a single stage. But it's within the range of variation that we've seen over the course of Australian history. The share public share of GDP went from almost nothing at the beginning of era federation to 40% of, of GDP all, all up uh, by the 1970s. It stayed around that level for a long time. We can have a guaranteed minimum income if that share were 50 rather than 40. As regards the incentive effects, um, people have been looking hard for them, but they uh, found them pretty hard to detect, I think it's fair to say. Mm. I mean, this is this point that uh, we don't, tend to see higher income earners were I mean we had hard working higher income earners even when marginal tax rates are up in the 60 or 60 percent or 70 percent that's the point you're making is it okay well that's at the top end and and at the bottom end well an important point is which I go through and uh go through the book is we already have of course marginal effective marginal tax rates with our with the clawbacks in our system in the 60s for lots of people essentially anybody getting family tax benefits is paying those high rates, and the same is true in the US with social security benefits, clawbacks of EITC, the earned income tax credit, and so forth. And so we don't see huge disincentive effects there. Equally, uh, uh, when we've done the experiments, both in with poor people in poor countries and with poor people in rich countries, uh, there doesn't seem to be any more effective way of aiding them than giving them money and not imposing any conditions on how they spend it. Yes. Look, I agree with you on that uh, that last point uh, wholeheartedly because that is a basic uh, lesson of economics. I mean, people will maximise their welfare when their choices are you know, less constrained. The fewer constraints, the better. And so I think this is what you were talking about before. If people... You know, they, they give them a budget, if they have a budget, and they see the prices of the different goods and services, and they're going to maximise their welfare, their satisfaction, uh, if they have a free choice. But I think the problem with some of these, if you restrict that in a way such as we do now with this, uh, is it a cashless uh, debit card I think they have for welfare, yeah. then presumably they... They're not going to be max, you know, doing as well as they were before. So the only argument you could make then is some sort of paternalistic argument that you know, the people won't spend the the money in the best way possible. That uh, you know they might spend it on drugs or or alcohol, but otherwise you you'd be better off giving, and, just giving people money. Is that correct? And in reality, I don't think it's paternalism in the sense of of, of concern for the welfare of the recipients. It's really resentment. 
that's being appealed to. You know, when you, when you know, a current affair or whatever runs stories on dog ledgers and so forth, uh, that's I think the where you get the focus group concern uh, that, that drives these kinds of policies. But it's certainly striking that Australia is moving towards these policies at precisely the point when we find science evidence in to say it doesn't. Sorry, John, I just lost you there. You, you mentioned uh, sure. you're concerned that Australia is moving to these policies. Yeah, it's striking that Australia is moving to these restrictive policies, which have been not the case in the past, precisely when we've finally got uh, the really reliable, hard evidence that these policies don't work, recognised, for example, by the award of the Economics Nobel to uh, Duflo and Banerjee, who worked very much on this topic uh, in terms of aid for poor countries and showed uh, that fairly unequivocally the untied benefits are the best way to go. Okay. John, can I just ask, uh, how well has your book been received by the public? Are you happy with how it's been received? Well, very happy with reception in Australia. I've had uh, yeah, good turnouts to book launches. My colleagues in the profession have been been very generous about it. Um, Obviously, we don't all agree on everything, but but certainly it's certainly it's been very well received. Uh, basically, because of the way the book market works, I guess you really need to be on the scene to to sell a book like this on the US market. So it's gone okay there, but not not so spectacularly. But but uh, in Australia, where it's where it's been able to reach uh, the message, been able to reach people, so they've looked at the book. It's been I've been very pleased with the response. Oh, that's good. I think it's the sort of book that will have a long shelf life. I think what what you've done here is you've focused on the concepts and explaining those as clearly as possible. That, that's what I really liked it, about mm-hmm. it when I first read it. I liked your example of opportunity costs and you talk about the choice between, what was it, a Bob Dylan concert and uh, going to see, might have been Eric Clapton yeah. or something. So yeah. I thought that, and you, you already had a ticket a ticket yes. to one, but then that was uh, the fact you already paid for it and you couldn't recover it. That That's a sunk cost. So. No. It, should, it shouldn't affect your decision. I thought that was really, really nice way uh, to do it. So, I mean, my feeling is that it'll probably be a book that has a long <laughs> shelf life and, you know, I expect people will be reading it in, you know, 10 or 20 years' time. I mean, how long's Hazlitt's book been out for? And yet well, people's- yeah, it's, it's, since it was brought out in 48, so 70 years it's been running. So if I can last that long, I'll be happy, yeah. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Now, I need to ask, uh, this is a point that Nicholas Gruen, I think he, made in when he uh, launched your book down in Melbourne, he, he talked about your phenomenal productivity. I think you've this is either your sixth or seventh book or some very you know, it's a, it's a it's an extraordinary number. Um but are you planning to write another book soon? So I've been talking with Andrew Lee, um a former economics professor now member of Parliament and, and Robert Wiblin, who's uh, with the effective altruism charity eighty thousand hours. We're talking about something on extreme risks for the coming century and what we can do about them. So runaway climate change, uh, nuclear war, pandemics, uh, the possibility of intelligent robots becoming conscious and wiping us out, all those kinds of things. So so we've been talking about it. I'm hoping to get stuck into that fairly soon. Okay. Well, that would be fascinating uh, because a lot of these things would be difficult to assess in our standard Cost benefit mm. framework, and I mean, we're talking about these uh, black swan events, and mm. that that ra- they raise a lot of challenges. So that sounds really fascinating. 
Now, a lot of my academic research, uh, stuff that gets published with lots of maths in high-tone journals, is about that very topic. So I'm hoping to take that sort of very theoretical stuff and bring it to bear on real-life problems. John, I really appreciate uh, your time today. Uh, I really found that uh, illuminating. I really, uh, yeah, it, your book and, and also our discussion has helped me think about a lot of these issues in more depth and uh, to test my own thinking. So, again, uh, thanks for the book and thanks for appearing on the program. Well, thanks for having me. Fantastic. Thanks, John.